Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. church and if you're visiting with us we are a church that is big about the bible around here so i'm going to ask if you would grab your bible if you don't have one with you there's one in one of the chairs there turn to acts 25 acts 25 we're going to be there Um, we've got a lot of ground to cover in the text today so i'm just going to kind of dive right in but just take a moment to remind ourselves where i'm coming where we've come in these last few sundays because actually i think it pulls together into this sunday So a few Sundays ago, we were in Acts uh, 21, and we talked about a people living in a world of hurt, people living in a world of hurt, and that was where Paul returns from his third ministry trip. He's there in Jerusalem. You'd think he'd get some rounding high fives in a parade or something like that, but instead he gets kind of chewed out, dragged out, beat up, and hauled out uh, of the time and experiencing just a world of hurt himself, and that's part of what happens as a follower of Christ. Uh, Hurts are not unusual. And then uh, 21 and 22, a people telling their stories. There Paul was on the Antonia Fortress, right connected or right next to the temple grounds in Jerusalem. And he has the opportunity to tell his story. And what a Sunday that was three, four Sundays ago when Ed and Francoise and Ali shared their stories as well as being able to hear Paul and telling his, I was, but then Jesus, now I am story in that. And then a couple Sundays ago, it was Acts 22 and 23, a people with a sure hope. Kind of the question on the table was, what kept Paul going? I mean, just what kept the dude just going and going and going? And we dug into that text and saw it was the sure hope of the resurrection that's happening there. And then 24 and 25, a people living in a corrupt world. That was last Sunday going through that text and just kind of observing here with the Jewish leaders, Claudius Lysias and the governors Felix and Festus and just all the corruption around. And we talked about how out of there we live in a fawning world, an accusing world, a boarding world, an evading world, and a calculating world. And here's the thing. Oftentimes people hear that kind of stuff and it's like, yeah, let's get all mad about it. That was not the point of it, right? It's not the point. It's to understand if we are out of Corinthians, if we're ambassadors for Christ in the world that we live in, we need to understand the world that we live in. And oftentimes we get confused with that. And so let me kind of pull all four of those together and it leads in today. Um, I'd say it this way. A spirit-dependent people, while experiencing a world of hurt, are to be faithfully telling their redemption stories uh, of their sure hope in the resurrection, realizing that we live in a corrupt world. Realizing that we live in a corrupt world. And I want to add one more to that today. Uh, We are to do that as a people with theological clarity. A people with theological clarity. Uh, Just the very nature of unclarity um, has with it this, this need for clarity. Corruptness lacks clarity, right? 
corruptness lacks clarity. And the gospel is very clear on what the gospel is about. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the great news that is needed by a corrupt world. And so we need to have theological clarity. I pray that today's text helps refine us and narrow us in, grab a hold in it. So if you're not already in Acts 25, go there. Um, We're in the middle of the chapter. Dr. Luke provides this great kind of summary. So I am going to go ahead and read it here. Um, Like the events of last Sunday, uh, the text is happening in Caesarea, about 70 miles north on the coast of the Mediterranean, and it's there. You can see the rendering on the center screen, and on that rendering, it just what it looked like in that day today, it's just flattened out uh, stones and rocks, but uh, you have the theater, you have the, the, the athletic things you have at the top there where these events are happening, uh, Herod's kind of governing palace with what's going on. But let's just dive into the text here. Let me begin in verse 13. Ready to go? Let's roll. Well, let me get the first verse. We'll set some context with the people and then we'll roll. Here we go, verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, how many days? We don't quite know, but some. So it's more than one. And we had some days pass. Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, we're meeting two new people here. If you're, if you're just visiting today, you haven't been around, let me put some uh, history uh, on these three individuals because they're important today. King Agrippa, he's Herod the Agrippa II. He is Marcus Julius Agrippa is his name. His father is Herod the Agrippa the first. Okay, and uh, so this is Junior uh, we have here at the table. Uh, His father uh, actually had uh, James, the apostle, killed, and he had Peter uh, imprisoned. So he has some history with the Jewish people from that standpoint. But uh, in that, he actually has some Jewish heritage in him. One commentator says about Agrippa that he had a reputation of being very pious in religious matters and an expert in Jewish issues. That's critical in in our text today. Keep that in mind. He has some Jewish understanding. So all of this, he's a member of the Herodian dynasty. He is is ruling over some of the region in northeastern Palestine at the time. He's probably in his mid-50s. I like that. I'm 58. So he's like right around my age-ish. Probably has more hair. Uh, But uh, he's in that. He's part Jewish. We'll see uh, him a little bit more. Then Bernice. Bernice is his younger sister by one year. This is his sister. Um, In history, she's called Bernice of Cilicia. She's also obviously a member of the Herodian dynasty uh, with all this. Um, And she had married an uncle. Um, And also in this, after she left him, she moved in with her brother, Herod Agrippa I, who we're talking about here. Now, I don't like to bring this kind of stuff up, but it's important for understanding the text today because of just the audience that Paul is speaking in. It's very likely, it's very likely that actually Bernice and her brother, King Agrippa, were having an incestuous relationship together, ooh, but in it, uh, it's understanding some of the things that are taking place in the setting, and so it matters with that. Governor Festus, we've already met him. Uh, he inherited Paul and the situation of Paul uh, from his predecessor, the governor Felix. 
Um, he was not informed in Jewish ways, and that's important. You'll see how all this pans out here in just a little bit here. So let's go from there. That gives you a little information. Verse 13, let's roll. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. Uh, by the way, Festus had just become governor. He's probably been governor for a matter of weeks. So part of the reason that Agrippa and Bernice are coming down is kind of in this. He has kingly reign over some of this territory. So he has a new governor. So they're meeting together in this. And they're getting familiar with each other. Uh, so Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's this man left prisoner by Felix, his predecessor. And when I was in Jerusalem... Uh, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. In other words, death. Uh, I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. Hey, there's some good law, really. That's some good governing. Verse 17 so when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man uh, to be brought. Uh, when the accusers stood up, the Jewish leaders, they brought no charge on this case of such evils as I supposed. In other words, he's thinking, this is, like, this is like something worthy of death. And then he's telling King Agrippa, informing, and then I learn about it, and I'm like, this was not at all what I supposed it would be in their charges. Verse 19, rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Got the picture? Festus is realizing as a Roman governor, I got a religious situation on my hands and I don't quite know how to handle this whole thing. King Agrippa has some Jewish heritage in his bloodline and interest in his bloodline and so he's got the guy and he's talking with us. Let's keep going, verse 20. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Now there's an emperor, there are kings reigning over these areas, and there's governors within the kingly reigns. Verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. And so Festus says, tomorrow you will hear him. Got the picture of what's going on here? This is a religious situation. Know this. The, the Jewish leaders have to show that get Paul off the scene, have to show that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They've been pushing this now for, it's been decades since Jesus died. And this story is going along that he did not rise from the dead. And they have to keep that story in place, otherwise they're in trouble with their religious system and they are in trouble with their reigning system in Israel. Let's keep reading. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with a great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Uh, let me set this. 
you have these big wigs coming in, these people coming in. We see in the text, there's Agrippa, there's Bernice, there's Festus the governor, there are military commanders, and there are the big wig powerful individuals of the community who have the money. Okay, you have a gathering together. This isn't two people, this isn't three people, this isn't five people. I don't know how many people this is, but it's more than that. All right, there's a group of people that are coming together in this. And note, it's great positions are there, great pomp is there, this great power is there. And we're gonna see here, as we are, that this pageantry is here. I mean, we talked about that last Sunday. We live in a world that loves to fawn all over itself. I think we even got some, some award thing coming up here. Just watch it. They'll fawn all over themselves. You're just in that kind of a world. And note that it's taking in the audience hall. In the audience hall. I've got this circled up here at the top of the screen. It's this section of the Herod's governing center here for this region on this. You've got a picture here on the sides. This is essentially the Supreme Court in our country. And I got that there so that you understand this. This is no country bumpkin thing, again, as I've been saying over the weeks. They are in a governing headquarters for the entire region, for countries with what's taking place. And Paul is essentially being brought before what would be like our Supreme Court. Okay, that's the picture. And then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Oh, could you imagine that? I mean, you've got a king, you've got a governor, you've got the king's sister, you've got uh, military leaders, you've got the, the, the millionaires in town all gathered around in this whole thing and you're brought in. By the way, it, it, it's known that Paul was not like this six-pack abs stud guy. Okay? In fact, uh, some think that Paul had horrible eyesight. He was not the guy that walked in the room and you went, whoa. He's impressive. That was not Paul. And think about this. He walks into this room with all these people around, and, they're, and they are people of power. And in comes this frumpy guy who's been held in the barracks, and he comes in, and it's very likely he had to squint to see who's in the room. And, and they're probably all thinking, this is going to be pretty simple. And yet Paul, in this uh, situation, I would be sweating buckets. Uh, Paul's in his zone. Watch this, verse 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought to live no longer. But I found that he had nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord, to the emperor, about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa. Now, now listen, that, that wasn't a fawning moment, I don't think. I actually think, especially because you, King Agrippa, because you have some understanding of the situation that I don't have in my background. I think that's part of what's going on here. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, especially King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it, seems re for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Friends, this is what this is all about. Festus has a situation that's been handed to him. And he's like, I hear this situation. And I'm like, I can't put this guy to death. 
And then he appeal, Paul appeals to Caesar, and he's like, okay, I'm going to send him to Caesar. I'm new on the job. He's coming for my territory. What am I going to tell Caesar his situation is? I need some help. Will you help me? That, that's what's happening here. So they're going to hear Paul, and their whole goal is, I need to know what to write down for Caesar. It's that simple on what's happening. So Paul has a situation in front of all of these leaders. Remember, uh, Acts 22, I believe it was, Jesus comes in while Paul is in the barracks back in Jerusalem at the Atonia Fortress. And Jesus, the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ some, uh, some 25 to almost 30 years after his death shows up in Paul's cell and says, Paul, I'm gonna send you to Rome. And you're going to tell the facts about me. And he's on his way. He's moving up the ladder. He's in Caesarea. In the next few weeks, we head to Rome. I wonder what Paul's going to say. Here we go. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Um, Just a note here. There's a cultural thing that's likely taking place here we have no idea, we just don't get. So I think it's important to know this. When Paul here, back at the Atonia Fortress, it said Paul stretched out his hand and then he spoke. That was most likely in that moment just to let everyone know that wanted to kill him that I'm gonna say something. This is not that. The scene is not rousing, it's not loud, it's not shooting all over the place. This hand motioning to the king is actually a gesture of respect. It might be the kind of thing like a bow, a, a, an acknowledgement. I'm just gonna tell you, everything that Paul is doing right now has love wrapped all around it. It respects the system upon which he is in and authorities who are over him as a citizen in this. And he makes this gesture to the king, essentially letting him know his respect for him. Wouldn't you think that someone being jailed up would come in and want to like, do something different, some other kind of gesture, some other kind of thing, but not Paul. You go back, Paul cheerfully views it as an opportunity. This is so cool, you guys. Here we go. His I was, but then Jesus, now I am story. I was, verse one through 11. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Again, by the way, I don't think that was a fawning move. I think Paul is particularly understanding, as we'll see here, that Agrippa has better understanding of his whole situation than anyone else in the room. Especially, verse 3, because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, Old Testament to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. The Old Testament is looking forward to a savior, looking forward to the coming Messiah. 
And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God would raise the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. But then Jesus. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests of Jerusalem. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, By the way, I want to pause on that just for a moment here because uh, some argue, well, Paul just kind of had like a heat stroke moment, you know, on the road to Damascus. Uh, That's not at all what Paul is saying here. In fact, Paul is saying that what he saw, all of the entourage saw. Paul is also saying that when he fell to the ground, it wasn't just like him having some spiritual wackadoo moment. It was they all fell to the ground, right? Right? This is what took place on the road to Damascus. This is grand. And I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. This idea of the stick that would be used to to punch or move the animals. And I said, who are you, Lord? He knew this was something beyond human. And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Again, like he did in Acts 22, I believe it was. It's like, can you imagine that moment when he had put all his eggs in the basket that this Jesus was a farce? And now some 25 years later, the Jesus that died, boom, on the scene. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In other words, a place in fellowship with the other saints in God. Verse 19, and then I am. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I uh, was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing 
deeds, it's present active participle for your grammarians, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would come uh, said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. We're going to come back to this here in just a little bit and grab a hold of uh, just the, the clarity of theology that Paul brings to the table But let's finish the rest of the chapter. There's an interruption and some interaction here. Verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, the governor, who's trying to find out what to write, um, I don't know how much that uh, played into this, but as a Roman with a loud voice said, Paul, you are out of your mind. (laughs) Tell me what you really think. (laughs) Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Just a couple of quick little things with that. Uh, I mean, he is getting this idea that, Paul, the stuff you are talking about is absolutely ridiculous here. And, and I will note, he, he, this guy, Festus, has been around Paul now for a little while. And he knows that Paul is a thinking man. Paul is not some obtuse, ignorant, just willy-nilly, touchy-feely, random kind of conversation talker. He knows that Paul is an educated, thinking, attorney-like, sharp, sharp individual. And to the point to where it's like you're so smart that your smartness is trumping over and taking your mind insane. And in this, you are driving yourself out of your mind. Look, how is Paul going to respond? Man, that's the time I got to say, I think the temperature in my ears would start moving up. And I'd be, it's time to go. But look at this. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. By the way, I don't think that was a fawning statement. I think Paul is really trying to show respect for this guy. Because Paul's been around Festus a number of times now. I think this is actually complementarian kind of comments back to each other in such a way that I hear that and I respect that, but allow me to push back on your thinking because you're a sharp individual. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words for the king knows. Isn't it interesting? He shifts over to the king who has a Jewish heritage background for the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. I wonder if Paul is picking up in this time that Festus, or I'm sorry, King Agrippa is just glued to everything he's saying. I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He's referring to the Old Testament prophets. Do you believe? Uh, Look at this. I know that you believe. He's not saying I know that you believe in Jesus Christ as your redeeming savior from your sin. He's not saying that. 
He's saying, I know that you believe in the Old Testament prophets and what they were saying and that one was coming. Paul is spurring, drawing King Agrippa into the whole conversation. Listen, I know what's going on in your thinking and what you're aware of. Verse 28, and Agrippa said to Paul, in, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And look at Paul's answer. King Agrippa, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am. And then the next statement is kind of cool. Except for the whole chains thing. I don't want anybody in that. Again, I just go, how cool is that? Hey, King Agrippa, I'm not here to press something down your throat. I mean, you're giving my defense, but to tell you the truth, whether short or long, oh, I would yearn that you would come to know Christ as the Savior out of the Old Testament. I would yearn for that to happen. What a wonderful exchange. And then the last verses, then the king rose, the governor, Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have, set, could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. We're gonna pick up there. Uh, I'll take you next week, next Sunday, into that text. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna come back in this because you can read through this account and you kind of go, this is really cool. This is really cool in a number of levels. Uh, and then you kind of move on. But I wanna pause here. Because I want for us to take a, a reconsider, a look back on the clarity in which Paul spoke. Because if we live in a, a, in, in, in a, a, a world of unclarity, in a, in a world that is lacking clarity, note how Paul speaks here. Just, let me kind of sum it this way. Paul does not speak to a broken world like they're theologically dumb. There's no watering of the gospel down here. There's no cramming in hellfire and brimstone of the gospel down either. He is just telling the gospel as it gloriously is with grand theological clarity. Let me kind of take us and see this because I'll say it this way. He is not saying to them, here's my story. I was having a feeling and then I had a feeling and afterwards I had a better feeling. Friends, sometimes that's the way the gospel is being presented today. And that's the way it's being seen as. Seen as is like we don't even know what it is. It's not this life was hard, then I heard about Jesus, so I decided to give Jesus a test drive. It wasn't that. It wasn't, I'm going to get in here. It wasn't I came across Jesus and I asked Jesus into my heart. By the way, nowhere in the Bible talks about that terminology. And by the way, what does that even mean to a secular world? Because, you see, in my heart, I have my girlfriend, boyfriend, or my family. I have my work career. And in my heart, I, I, have, I have the things I like to do. And so I'm just going to add Jesus to that shelf of things that I, are already in my heart. And he's going to kind of make it all even better. It's really an unclear thing. Here's another one I'm pushing. Love you. I was at church and I went forward and I prayed a prayer. 
uh, Ed's story the other Sunday, that was exactly Ed's story until five years later when he came to realize that he's like, you know what? I really don't even know Christ as my Savior. Nothing's wrong with an altar call. But we need to be careful. There's no, I grew up going to church and that's just kind of my thing. I'm religious. What, what, what religion are you? Christian. Baptist. Methodist. I'm sure Jesus is going to be asking that when we see him in heaven. Here's another one. I heard about Jesus and I was baptized. Man, I'm about baptism. Love baptisms. But does that communicating there, that when, we, when that is said, that the baptism is what saves? I don't believe that that's what Scripture teaches. Baptism is something that follows salvation in Christ. Clarity again. Well, I could bring up a whole number of other things, but let's get on to some clarity items here, okay, quickly. Five clarity truths that I want to kind of see, that I see in this text here that are important. Number one, there is a God who raises the dead, verse 8. There is a God who raises the dead. He says, why is it uh, thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? By the way, in there he makes a statement that there is a God. And by the way, don't think that we live in a world where everyone thinks that there is a God or that there is one God. But there is a God, is the theological clarity, and that God raises the dead. By the way, if we sit on that and think about that for a little bit, wait a second, Genesis chapter one, that means that we are not, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Know this, friends, we are not here by some random mistake. You and I are not here by some random mistake. We are here by a divine God that created us, Genesis chapter one, in his image, and that means something. Acts 23, six, there is a resurrection of the dead. Acts 24, 15, a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Oh my, so there is a, re- there is a God who raises the dead and-, and there is just and unjust. Wait a second, what does that mean? Have we drilled into that? Have you dived into that? Wait a second, God says in his word that there are just and unjust, and, oh, Revelation uh, chapter 20, who will stand before the throne in the books in the book. Either all of that is a fallacy Or if all of that is true, my goodness, we should be drilling into that, right? Because if there is a God who raises the dead and we will stand before him, holy cow, friends, you and I gotta be thinking of getting ready for that meeting. And yet how often is our world not giving thought to it? There is a God who raises the dead. Secondly, that God has promised the hope of his savior. Verses six and seven, he makes reference to that. Genesis 3.15, there will be an offspring of Eve that will bruise Satan's heel, but this one will deal Satan a lethal blow. There will be a savior. It's all the way in the first beginning, first three chapters of Genesis. All this is coming out of the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 22, there will be one poured out, delivered up, pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray and God has taken up from you into heaven. I'm sorry, I just jumped. And has laid on him the iniquity of us all like a lamb led to the slaughter. Listen, friends, out of the Old Testament, that's why he kept referencing back. Listen, uh, King Agrippa, I am just taking out of the Old Testament the promise of the hope of the Messiah that you know about, and I am simply saying this, point number three, that Savior is Jesus. 
That savior is Jesus, not Jesus and a bunch of other buddy pals who are in this religious system always lead to God. Friends, that is the wide path. And if I can say, as I'm pressing into this, with theological clarity, always lead to God, I'm sorry, but that makes no sense if you drill into it. Because if you talk with someone who knows the scriptures, the scriptures say only through Jesus, only through Jesus. In fact, it's very clear, there is no other way. If you talk with someone who uh, knows their Quran and pulls their Quran out, they're gonna tell you that the, the, the biblical way is not the Quran way. Pull someone out with the Jehovah's Witness Bible and you're gonna find out that they say Jesus is someone else and we would say who Jesus is. Go to the Mormon and pull out the Mormon Bible and they're gonna have a whole different thing. And then we say all those lead to heaven. Listen, friends, I'm just gonna say to you, honestly and straightforward with you, if I can press into you lovingly, it's like that is ridiculous. There is a God, and all of this should cause us to go, well then, who is that God? And that God raises the dead, and that God has promised a hope of a savior. If there's a hope of a savior, then why do I need a savior? Well, apparently, uh, we got a problem. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, we start there. Thanks, Adam and Eve. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in your sins upon sins. A child owned by the prince of the power of the air, Satan. Verse four, but God. But God, rich in mercy, set the second person of the Trinity to step in our place and take care of our sin problem. And all who would receive him, they would become children of God. There is a God who raises the dead and that God has promised the hope of his savior. And Jesus is that promised savior. And in the time, if you've received Christ as your savior, you stand before the throne. Know this friend, know this loved one, your name is in the book. And by the way, all of that changes now because the the fourth and fifth, the risen Jesus appoints his own to be his servants, verse 16. Sir Paul makes mention of the very words of Christ. For this purpose to appoint you as a servant. The word here that's used in this, it's not doulos, it's a different word. It's to be his attendants. That's cool. You know, a lot of people look at Jesus like, I want Jesus so Jesus can, if they were really to get down to it, so Jesus can be my attendant and to do for me what I want to have happen for me because we are just by nature, we are self-rulers. And if Jesus will help me be a better self-ruler, then I want that. But friend, know this, uh, that's not theologically clear at all. In fact, that is heresy. The fact of the matter is, is he is king, he rules, and if we come to know Christ, we become his attendant. Our life is to make a turn from it all being about me to it all being about him. I am his attendant now for his purposes. If anyone would come after me, let him, let her deny themselves and come after me. 
2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Romans 12, when I appeal to you therefore by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, I get to serve God, is the idea. And then fifth, the risen Jesus appoints his own to be his witnesses. A servant and witnesses. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go make disciples. 2 Corinthians 5, 18, who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Then verse 20, we talked about last Sunday, is ambassadors of Christ and, and making his appeal through us to others. Man, friends, I'm telling you, those are Five awesome truths. There is a God who raises the dead, that God has promised the hope of his Savior. Jesus is the promised Savior. The risen Jesus appoints his own to be his servants and his witnesses. So with that in mind, I want to finish with three gospel clarity truths. That is the thinking, and something is to then be done. And here's what he says. Number one, verse 18. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. Open your eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. By the way, open your eyes means we have a spiritually blind problem. By the very nature of it, we are spiritually blind. And sometimes we're like, well, if I just don't see it, it isn't there. And then you walk into the wall. But we're to think, and I love the fact that Paul is pulling these people in. He's not chewing them out. He's not guilting them out. He is calling them to think and to grab a hold. And he's kind of like, as Jesus said to him, open your eyes. And then secondly, verse 20 and verse 18, repent. Open your eyes and repent, verse 18, turn Repent, repenting is the response to opened eyes. Oh my, I see that I am a sinner, Romans 3, 23, separated from God. And Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, that's spiritual death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I repent, I am a sinner, I am in need of a savior because I am doomed Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Boy, it's hard to repent. It just shows you how we don't even like hearing the word. Can I be honest with you? I know as I say this, I know as I say it for you, it's hard to hear it. It's hard to receive it. Why? Because we are so, and I'm putting myself in this, we are so proud. Like, don't tell me, man, I don't got my act together. Because if you tell me I don't have my act together, people around me are gonna think I don't have my act together. And then, and then maybe real life starts happening. Maybe then we open our eyes and just go, here, here's the fact. I'm a broken dude, you're broken dudes and dudettes. Before a holy God. And we are in need of a savior. And let's just admit it. 
Let's just confess it. Let's just state it because God has declared it is so. And let's just humble ourselves and like be put face down in it because know this, God loves people, including his people, when they repent. Prodigal son comes home and the father's like, get away from me. Stay away. No, that's not how it goes. The father's running. Party! Celebration! My son who was lost is home! And we just have, in myself as well, we just have this hard-hearted about wanting to be repenters. Open our eyes, repent, and lastly, affect deeds. Verse 20, you see that performing deeds in keeping with repentance? That's a present active participle. It's not one more thing. We do not earn our salvation by deeds, but our salvation, our repentance should change our lives. It's the affecting deeds. It's like, my goodness, I am a follower of Christ Jesus now. I am his attendant now. And for like, my life should change, wouldn't you think? Mark chapter four in the four soils. When I receive Jesus Christ and the four soil puts itself in and the fruit and the, 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 the tree comes out of the seed, Christ comes out and fruit grows. That's how you know that the soil has received the seed. Just as you receive Jesus as Lord, Colossians 2, 6 and 7, so walk in him, rooted, built up, established in him, bounding in love. Matthew 7, every healthy tree bears fruit. Sermon on the Mount. And then Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. In the scariest passage in all of scripture, and Jesus will respond, but I didn't even know you. They thought that they were in a relationship with Jesus, but they never actually had a conversation with Jesus about it. Because Jesus would have been like, I don't know you. Friends, you know I don't do many altar-like calls. But when the text has it, I'm gonna do it. Because do you see at the very end there where Paul is loving on King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets, the Old Testament? You, I know you do. Carry it on through, King Agrippa. Just carry it on through. And whether it takes short or long, he's pressing into King Agrippa. So I pray that today, God's word is pressing into us, all of us, redeemed in Christ, what an example of how to share our faith with others. What an example of the clarity of the gospel. It's simply this. Let's open our eyes and let's repent and let's affect deeds fitting with salvation. Let's be people who speak with clarity and theological truth Realizing that our world yearns for clarity. They are so tired of all the fluffy nutter theology.
And maybe today you're sitting here and you're saying, Doug, if, if you were to ask me straight up one-on-one, -on -one, right now I'm kind of in a place where I don't know if I know that I know that I have a relationship with the Lord. Then it's time to drive the stake in the ground and receive Christ as your savior. But listen to me, I don't wanna make it easy. In fact, I'm not gonna call you forward because frankly, I think that's easy. I'm actually gonna ask if that's you today or if you have some questions where you're just like, I'm just struggling, I'm just stuck in a place here and I can't get out of it. I need to talk with someone I haven't been talking with anyone. Could I have this? Could I have some of our small group leaders? If you would, some of our small group leaders, if you just go and be at the back of the door, would you just do that here now with some of you? And here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna say, listen, when, when I close in prayer, we're not gonna have time for a song here. Uh, to close things out. But when I close in prayer, if for you, if you're just at a place where it's like, I just, I just wanna talk with someone, and I know you're at that place where it's like, man, this is awkward, dude. Trust me, I know. And yet in it, let me tell you, there is nothing, nothing more important than this issue because this is an eternity issue. And maybe you have questions where it's like, man, tell me, I, I'm like, how do I know whether this is the way or not? Or whatever it is, listen, uh, Paul loves thinking people. Jesus loves thinking people. And I and we, our church, we love people that think. So maybe you're just in a place where I just got some questions to ask. I'm telling you, we got some people lined up back there who would love to talk with you. They would love to sit with you and just go, what up? And what do you wanna talk about, okay? We're a church that equips the saints to do the work of the ministry and not the guy up front, up front all the time. So here's the thing, would you stand? And I'm gonna close in prayer. And if that's you, while I'm praying, would you just go and you just, if you're a woman, just grab one of the women at the back. If a guy, just grab one. Maybe teens, maybe it's one of you. We, I'm not making a spectacle. That is not my desire at all today. I just want, if today is the day, I'm telling you, friend, ask. Get some clarity. Know that you know that you know. Right, Ed? Amen. So Lord, I pray over these people, these dear people who are here today to wanna to hear from you. And I pray that your word out of this text would have been the case today. God, I pray for encouragement of those who know Christ as their savior, that, that they would be looking at this and going, greater theological clarity in my thinking, greater theological clarity in my speaking. May we be a church that ministers lovingly, kindly, graciously to our world with the mindset of whether slower it takes a long, long time, but we're gonna love on people with the good news of Jesus Christ. May we be that. Help us, Lord, to be that. And Father, I pray if today, if there's anyone in this room who is just not sure where they are at in their relationship with you, maybe they've been attending here for years. Maybe they've been going to church all their life. But as they look, they have questions or as they look at their own life, they just go, I have no fruit fitting true repentance. God, I just pray they would just step out, grab a hold of someone and talk. Lord, you love us enough that you will not let up. So God, I pray, would you keep after us? Would you press into us? May we even be okay at times feeling uncomfortable by you pressing into our souls. And may we receive that as a loving 
touch of our God that is alive. So God, do a work in ways that only you can do, all for your glory, all for the fame of your name. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, church.